Bloody Elbow presents the Hey, Not the Face podcast. Your host is Bloody Elbow's chief financial columnist, John Nash. Hello and welcome to Hey, Not the Face with your host, John Nash, and your producer, me, Steffi Haynes. And today we're going to look into the Ali Act. John, how the hell are you? I'm functionally okay. Very, okay. yeah, very busy, very busy fall. So, but I'm fine now. Got a cup of coffee, got a good night's rest. I'm living large. Living large. So, John, I got to know what the hell is the Ali Act? Well, the Ali Act is a bill passed by Congress. It's a federal legislation that was passed, signed into law in 2000. Its full name is the Muhammad Ali Boxing Reform Act. And what it is, is an extension of the Professional Boxer Safety Act. And, and what that does is it, it's an addition to it that adds economic protections to the fighters on top of the health and safety protections they, they had offered before with the previous bill. How long has has the Ali Act been around? Well, it, it was signed into law in uh, early January 2000. So it's been in, in effect now for 22 years, technically, although the a lot of the, the elements of the Ali Act didn't go into effect for two years after the bill was signed into law. So really, we've had 20 years of the Ali Act governing boxing. It's the 20 years of the Ali Act era. How and why was it passed into law? Like, what was the driving force for, for making the Ali Act? Well, the driving force was boxing. The, just the very nature of boxing is that it is, it's been, it's famous for being an incredibly corrupt sport, a sport that takes advantage of its boxers uh, to, an, a, to a tremendous degree. And so it was passed, it's for years or decades actually, they've been meaning to pass some sort of bill to give boxers protection that's been brought up before Congress numerous times, starting in the 60s. And I think the impetus this time, you know, before there had been uh, the mob that actually run boxing, you had the International Boxing Club of New York and and all these abuses. But it was really a the big one was a little bit Bob Arum and some of the other promoters, but mostly Don King. Some of the stuff Don King was doing, it, it coming into the public light and and some of the stuff him and other promoters were doing besides like making their their fighters force them to take them as managers and promoters and getting, you know, basically dealing with themselves and taking a huge chunk of the revenue. And on top of that, uh, using stuff like course of contracts and options, they had monopolized. These guys were able to rip off their fighters and monopolize the sports. So that's what, what got it, the, the impetus moving. In the 90s, John McCain, a big boxing fan, pushed the, the, the current bill forward uh, after several hearings, several years, starting in the 96, up for a few years. And finally, in 99, Congress uh, passed it as law. And uh, in 2000, it was signed into law by uh, the president uh, at the time, Bill Clinton. Wow. John McCain? Yes. <laughs> you know, it just stands out to me, the, the guy that called MMA, human cockfighting, was such a champion of boxing. One would think that maybe a little crossover would happen there. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that think he only promoted this as uh, self self promotion himself to give himself some attention. I don't know. There seems to be I, you'll read a lot of the uh, the testimony and hearings. He seems to have a lot of interest in in boxing and in, in kind of protecting boxing. At the same time, it is amusing if you ever go back and read those hearings. They bring up UFC and MMA occasionally, and they do not bring it up in a positive light. No, 
<laughs> I bet they don't. Um, what does the Aliac do? Well, it has several elements. And one thing it does, it requires standards. It has standards of how it requires like standards for the contracts. Um, and there's a template, a basic contract template between a promoter and a boxer that that a, a boxer, they can go to the websites and they can download and it, it fills out the, the basic bout agreement between a promoter and a boxer. So that's that's out there now, although there's really no enforcement on these standards. That's the problem. That's going to be the consistent problem with all this. So it requires standards. It requires disclosure uh, between all the parties. So disclosure of your health and medical to the the, the uh, sanctioning organization, not sanctioning, but the state athletic commissions. But also requires disclosure of contract elements to the uh, athletic commissions. It requires disclosure of financial disclosure. So the promoters legally have to disclose the revenue they're making off about uh, before they can collect that revenue for themselves, before they can pay themselves. So the fighters, in that way, the fighters get a lot more information about how much their fights are generating. But in that, and then on top of that, it also has a bill that blocks conflicts of interest. So a promoter and a manager cannot be the same thing, uh, long as in cha- for championship bouts. There's uh, there's an exemption exemption for non less than ten round fights. But generally, the big fights, you cannot be a promoter and manager. You cannot have uh, send compensation between a promoter and a sanctioning organization. There can be no conflicts of interest between. Uh, the promoters, managers, and trainers, and uh, matchmakers, and the sanctioning or athletic commission. So it puts a lot more blocks between conflicts of interest. And finally, the big one, it also bans what's called course of contracts. Contracts that stipulate that you have to sign with that promoter to get a fight. All right. I need you to back up for a moment, sir. Yes. When you were talking about that it requires standards, Although it's a pain in the ass enforcing them. Explain what you meant by that. Because uh, if I'm understanding correctly, the Ali Act isn't, it, it doesn't seem like it's functioning right if they're they're violating it and not having its rules enforced. That That is true. It's not quite being enforced by the bodies that are supposed to enforce it, the athletic commissions and the federal government. Why? So, Why? Be- well, because they don't really care. They're, they they put it in the law that these these are the people that are supposed to kind of like operate and, and, and enforce the Ali Act, but they have no interest really in doing it because there is no separate body for the, let's say, the Department of Justice or the Federal Trade Commission for their part. So they have no interest in going out and investigating it because they have no budget for it and they, they don't know much about boxing. There's no body that's been a separate entity that's been established in those bodies to look out for boxing. And so they do nothing to go out of their way to investigate boxing. They kind of get their hands off. On the athletic commissions, they they fall the bare minimum of the rules, and often it's in their state regulations or some of these uh, these rules, so they, they enforce those. But it's not in their interest too to enforce it, and and partly they don't have the resources. Partly they're 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 a captured regulatory body. They're captured by the promoters. I mean, we see it recently with the. Um, at Nevada Athletic Commission, they do not release payouts lately. They're they're they've sanctioned fat uh, slap fighting with Dana White. They've you know step after step, whatever the promoters want, they go along with why, and they've even said it because they're afraid the promoter will go to another state and then they won't get that revenue. And so they are they are not enforcing their parts of the Ali Act, the part that they have any sort of responsibility for. And they're going to claim really that Aliak gave them no responsibility. They're going to claim it did not give us any power to really enforce it. Partly true, but there's they could do a lot more. But what does is allowed to be enforced 
and we probably should go back at some point. We'll go back through all the stuff I said to say how it works in boxing. But for right now, how it is enforced, the one tool that really works in it, it has a right to private action. The boxer themselves who has standing can bring it to court and sue people for violating the Ali Act. And so you'll see a lot of cases where they cite the Ali Act, where they say, listen, he broke this ver- this part of the Ali Act. And even though technically we haven't seen many lawsuits with Ali Act lawsuits go forward, we've seen a lot of them submitted in the complaint in the Ali Act, and then they get settled. And one of the strong theories is that basically people know it's in the law. It's an obvious, you know, if I violate, it's an obvious violation. I'm at fault. I'm going to lose this case. Let's settle and get it done. So that's where the power of the Ali Act comes in. It gives the right of private action to the boxers. Okay. So if there's so so much difficulty in enforcing the rules when they are violated, what can be done to fix that? Well, if it's, I guess there's several things. One thing we could see done in the future to fix it is we could, we could propose there's an amendment that's been proposed in the past. John McCain submitted it several times to Senate before he passed away is the professional boxing amendment act and the professional boxing amendment act would strengthen the basically make a, a federal national U S boxing commission to oversee the sport that all the other commissions have to submit to. And that way they could be the general, the final enforcement arbitrator of what's going on. And that way, too, you couldn't shop for commission shopping because they oversee all commissions. There's no point in you you submitting to what the promoters want to do because the United States is not going to care if they lose a fight. And what are you going to go to? You know, you're going to lose Vegas and you're not going to get the massive gate if you go overseas. People want to fight in the United States. So they don't have to worry about them playing the states against each other. And that would make an official body, a, a boxing board that would oversee the sport. And that would be one fix. But how do you get that through Congress is the big problem. Another way to fix this, another way, and we, we can get later, we can talk about this more, is if the boxers create an association, you know, an association has standing for boxers, right? And so an association could sue on behalf of boxers and basically enforce the Ali Act themselves. They wouldn't need the government to step in. They could do it themselves through the courts. This amendment thing that John McCain was trying to push through multiple times before he passed away, has there been any movement on that since he passed away, or is it sort of stuck in the water? No, no. Him and uh, him and King from Iowa, who has a terrible reputation, were the two guys pushing for it. He was pushing in the House, McCain in the Senate. And since uh, King's now longer in the in the, the House and John McCain passed away, no one is there's no one really looking to push to any new legislation for boxing. Wow, that really sucks. Who's looking out for these guys and gals then? Well, uh, no one themselves. I mean, that's the that's the big problem is that there's no one really looking out for them. Some of their, their managers might be, but there's no. As we know, boxers and fighters are in a kind of a weak position when dealing with uh, the other entities, and they they need someone to look out for them, and they don't have an association, and they don't have uh, the federal government really looking out for them. All they really got is their themselves, and so, I mean, at least they have the right of private action, which is the, the big benefit of this. All right. Let's find out what exactly it does like let's eliminate some of the myths can you give us some of the myths that are always swirling around the ali act 
Well, I guess one myth, if we go back, because it requires disclosure on the compensation, right? And so people assume that the promoter has to disclose everything to the boxer, uh, to all the boxers on a card, let's say. But no, they don't. There's, they've narrowed it down over, with, uh, over the time that the promoter has to disclose to those boxers had an impact on the finances of the card. And that would be basically the people in the, the main event and maybe the part of the undercard that were used for promotional services. And also, there's when they disclose is not guaranteed. That it says you just have to disclose the amount. You don't have to disclose negotiations. You you don't have to disclose, uh, you know the the amount of money that's being offered by different parties. You just have to disclose the compensation that the promoter is getting for the event uh, before you collect the money. And so, wait, may I ask a question? Yeah. Would a site fee be in in that? Category? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, okay. you have to reveal how much you made from the site fee, but okay. you don't have to reveal what the other offers were for the site fee. Ah, OK. You, OK. In you, case you, they tur- yeah. Would that be in case they turn down a, a higher offer? Or why? Why is that? Well, part of it, I mean, what her, what the boxer would like is he would like to know every step of the way what's being offered, how much money at the beginning is available. That way he can negotiate his price because if you come in and say, I will fight X for $5 million because I think this fight is going to be a big hit, and then you find out it's a much bigger fight than you realized after they revealed the compensation to you, you're like, you thought the event would make $10 million, and so you want to get at least $5 million in pay, and you get paid $5 million, and then the, re- the returns come in and you find out the event made 20 or $30 million, you might be upset as a boxer. Mm. You might be like, oh, I could have asked for a lot more if I had this information on hand, how much was actually available. And so that hurt. But compared to like MMA fighters who are completely in the dark, except for, you know, they're, when they get their pay-per-view bonuses, the UFC doesn't share gate with them, ticket sales, none of that information. They might not be able to use it for the current negotiations. I, the, I should just, to change the bigger guys like a Mayweather Canelo. Those guys have it in their contract that you got to disclose everything, that they get to know what's being made for the event as it's happening, right? Mm. But for but for other guys, that's a problem. But for MMA, you don't get to know – at least boxers, the managers and stuff, they can compile this. They know over time what their boxers bringing in, and so they can ask for a larger piece of the pie. But but for MMA fighters, it's mostly they're in the dark. They have this information's unavailable to them, except for you know when we disclose it through lawsuits and stuff. That but that's not it. It it's not as granular as probably a lot of the information the boxers get. So it's not as useful to them. Uh, that's one myth. The other one is that the idea I always hear this that the boxing that the Ali Act limits contracts to one year, right? Right. Twelve months is the limit, and that's not true at all. That's the course of contract provision. A course of contract can be 12 months. And what they mean by a course of contract, it's not that contracts can be 12 months. It means if I'm a promoter and I have a fighter that I want you to fight, and the only chance I'm going to let you fight that guy is by signing a contract with me, right, to fight him, that contract cannot be more than one year in length, right? So I can't make you sign with me a, a, an eight-fight deal to fight this 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 other fighter i can only offer and say listen you're gonna fight my guy you want to fight him i will offer you have to sign with me for one year i have options on you for up to you know one year now the exception is there's also in the ali act the course of contract provision that excludes mandatory bouts if a sanctioned organization declares you a mandatory you cannot make that fighter sign with you no matter what and so you technically, under the way sanctions work, you either have to come to an agreement with the guy that's been declared the mandatory challenger, or you lose your your boxer has to give up his title, 
but eventually, or it goes to purse bid if you can't come to an agreement and anybody can bid on it. So you're not the promoter anymore of the event, possibly not the promoter. But that that champ, that contender automatically gets a chance at that title without having to sign a contract with anybody else. And so he's not locked into contracts. And so if you want to use the MMA example, because most listeners are probably MMA fans, you look how MMA, Bellator, UFC works. The Bellator UFC says you cannot fight for my title, the UFC title, to be the champion unless you sign with the UFC, right? Mm-hmm. You can't fight with the champion unless you sign with us. We want you to sign like a six-fight deal. Well, that's a course of contract. You require them to sign with you to get a chance to fight the champion, right? And on top of that, there's no such thing as mandatory. So if you're the number one fighter in the world that's out there and everybody thinks you're the number one fighter, let's say, you know, like a lot of people right now, let's say in Bellator, we got a lot of people rate if Corey Anderson wins and Pitbull stays, they people view them as the second best in their weight division outside the UFC champions. Neither one's going to be declared a mandatory. The only way they can fight the UFC champion is to get out of their Bellator contracts and fight and then sign long-term deals with the UFC where in boxing, they could be declared mandatories and those bouts would have to go ahead no matter what. And they would never be required to sign with the UFC to get a chance at that world title. Wow. So the, if the Ali Act has ever expanded into MMA, we could would we see any positive benefit or would it be even be enforced? I mean, tell me your global view of this thing if it moved into MMA. Well, that's the that's what Rob Macy and those guys at the MMAFA, you know, Nate Corey, Kung Lee, uh, Randy Couture, all those guys are trying to do is they're trying to extend the they've been trying to get past the Ali Expansion Act, which is, you know, it's because and people will say it's not. It's a, a big hurdle it hit was the Trump administration mm-hmm. because Trump was so close to uh, the, the Dana White and the UFC and uh, and the main proponent of the bill. Mark Wayne Mullen is now in the Trump camp. So I'm not sure from what I hear, and I don't know, you know, I'm not speaking to Mark Wayne directly, but from what I hear is that that's one of the reasons he's kind of dropped the Ali Act. He's not, you know, he doesn't want to do anything that upsets Trump, but who knows if that's true. But the, the Ali Act Expansion Act, what they want to do is they want to basically just change the terms so that MMA, you know, boxing, they add MMA fighter to it, another combat sports. And what that would do is people assume that it would be this, I mean, it would be a drastic change to MMA because we've gone through some of the stuff. You can't, in MMA, you you don't have to disclose about what the finances are for an event, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that gives the fighters more power. I mean, Tim Kennedy, when I talked to him, that was one of the big things he thought. That would be the biggest change for the Ali Act was we would know, you know, what we're making, our events are generating. So we could ask for more. I think the other ones are even bigger. It, it has the ban on course of contracts, Right. But again, course of contracts wouldn't be that big a ban because UFC would still have their own title. You would have to fight for a UFC title and sign. You know, there's no sanctioning organization to declare who's the mandatory. So there'd be no mandatories in in MMA if the Ali Act expansion. Except here's the other possibility: is in the Ali Act, as we mentioned earlier, is it blocks conflicts of interest. Promoters can't compensate sanctioning organizations, right? You can't, you, there cannot be compensation passed between them. And we're seeing scandals in boxing because people try to skirt around that with these lobbying groups, which is an obvious violation, but we're not really going to see the FD, you know, we're not going to see the government or athletic commissions really do anything about it, as we mentioned earlier. But, anyways, <clears throat> the sanctioning organizations in boxing are separate entities than the promoter. 
And if you read the Ali Act, that compensation, there's an argument to be made that an MMA, that a promoter cannot be a sanctioning organization. In fact, that's an argument Tim Lukanoff, the, the former head of the ABC, has made. That's an argument that others have made and, you know, uh, with regard to, you know, what PBC was trying to do. So there, there, there's some people that seem to think that that interpretation means that a promoter can't be, uh, can't have their own titles, which would be a big change for MMA. Because, as you know, the promoters own their titles. So if the promoter can't issue a title, he would have to start using a third party. And if he starts using a third party, a sanctioning organization that crowns champions, that means you'd have inter-promotional champion possible fights because they'd be rated both part, you know, both promotions, fighters would be rated by that sanctioning organization. So, so in other words, uh, a PFL, a Bellator, a one, all these different promoters might possibly have their fighters rated on that sanctioning organization and possibly have their guys declared mandatories or challengers. And so it wouldn't be an exclusive people fighting that one promotions, that one's promotions boxers. It wouldn't be an in-house promotion. I mean, a sank title, the the promoter would have to open it up to outside. And that would be the, that's where it would be a huge change. That's not guaranteed though. There's no, there's, you talk to a lot of people and I've interviewed to tons of people about the Ali Act, uh, you know, Liam Margolis, the promoter, Lou DiBella, uh, Sam Spira, uh, who used to manage Randy Couture, Pat English, the, the old boxing attorney and former advisor to uh, Bjorn Rebney at Bellator, uh, Kurt Emhoff, uh, Rob Macy, who does the MMAFA, a bunch of guys. Like, just the line of boxing people and boxing and stuff or trying to, or legislation trying to pass the Ali Act. I spoke to all The question is, is that that sanctioned organization is the big one because that would be the drastic change to MMA. And if you pass an expansion act for MMA to expand it, Ali Act to expand into MMA, it's possible you could just add a simple sentence into, uh, into the introduction of the bill. And that would guarantee that the, it would be viewed sanctioning organizations would be viewed as having, having to be separate entities as from the promoters. What would the simple sentence be? Well, it matters where you have to put it, but you just have to introduce in the legislation, in the uh, in the introduction or somewhere in the notes is just basically say the purpose of the bill is that, you know, that promoters, let's say that promoters are, MMA promoters are abusing their powers by operating as sanctioning organizations. Then we know that what the purpose of the bill is. The purpose of the bill is to stop MMA promotions to act like sanctioning organizations. What does that mean? Sanctioning organizations sanction fights. Uh Crown champions. We have a provision in there that bans that. That you know that uh, that the the ban that bans the uh, uh, conflicts of interest between those two parties. So we know it would cover that now. With with the Ali Act being expanded, would that destroy the UFC? Well, I mean, it sounds like it. What I just said, but I don't think it would. <laughs> it would destroy the current model of the UFC, mm-hmm. the current model. But the UFC is the 800-pound gorilla. They they make 10 times what everybody else makes in the MMA, right? So what it would probably force is they couldn't force their top guys to sign with them long term. They couldn't make them sign these contracts. I don't know if you heard Francis Ngannou's recent con- uh, interview with uh, Joe Pompanelli, I think his name is. Pompliano, yes. Pomp- Pompliano. is very, yeah. very enlightening. But he talked about how you, your value, you're always undervalued because the UFC has so much leverage, right? Uh, well, the, you wouldn't have to sign those additional contracts, extensions anymore. You could say, listen, I've signed with you. I fought for, I fought four to six times with you UFC. I'm not going to resign because I'm now rated number 10th in the world by this sanctioning organization. 
I don't lose my ranking by leaving the UFC. It's my property right now. I own my ranking. So if I go to another promoter, I'm still number 10. I win a couple fights. I can be declared a mandatory. I can ask for a lot more than what's in my contract. And so that's what would change. The UFC, if they wanted to stay the top promotion, they would have to pay more. And they could easily pay more. They, they would just have to outbid, outpay all the other promotions. But fighters would have the option of going to another promotion without concern that they would be excluded from ever being the UFC champion. And being the champion is not only just a prestige thing. I mean, people get in the sport to be known as the best in the world, but being a champion is a financial thing. Being the UFC champion elevates your, your prestige enough that you can ask for a lot more, right? And so that would be the big change. The UFC would have to make a decision. Are they going to use a bigger chunk of the revenue to, to pay the fighters, the top guys, the, the ranked athletes, the people that could potentially compete for a title, are they going to pay them more to stay with the UFC? Or are if they're not, if they're not going to use that money to pay them, those fighters could possibly go to other promotions and still get a chance to fight for the championships. Now, when I saw the outline, there was uh, an item on your outline that stood out to me that I did not know. And that's going to be my next question here. How was Conor McGregor going to use the Ali Act to get out of his contract because I did not know that he was even trying to at any point. So explain. Well, if you remember in 2016, when uh, there was talk that uh, McGregor was going to fight Mayweather, right? Mm -hmm. At the end of the year, uh, actually, I wrote an article how McGregor could use the Ali Act to get out of his contract uh, in early 2016 when people were thinking there was no chance the fight was going to happen. By the end of the year, He'd fall. He'd done a lot of the steps that I'd outlined in that, and I, I didn't. I, I mean, I write in the contract. I got the information from several other people because the idea, the rumor was floating around that this is something McGregor might do. And so, at the end of the year, McGregor applied for a boxing license, and he warned the UFC. He basically, said, "If the UFC, I want to work with the UFC and have this Mayweather fight, but if they don't use, give me the Mayweather fight." I am going to, you know, I, I have a boxing license now. I, the, I think I will be under the protection of the Ali Act, and I'm going to go ahead and fight McGregor Mayweather without them. Now, there's no guarantee that would happen, but the theory was that McGregor, with the with the boxing license, now that he's professional boxing, he falls under the protection of the Ali Act. He could claim that the UFC contract, which gave them the right to promote boxing events, so technically would make them a boxing promoter. Their contracts break the Ali Act because as provisions that could be read as being coercive contracts. All right, that- I get. Wait, wait. I whoa. Okay, back up for just a second. Can't can Francis Ngannou do this? It's possible, but why would Francis? I guess the argument was why would Francis do this path that is risky, that would take a lawsuit, that might lose when he knows he has a sunset provision coming up. Uh, okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And for and McGregor, the one thing people forget McGregor, <coughs> oh, pardon me, one thing for McGregor, he had a massive payday on the line for this event, right? And so it's financially makes sense for him to take the risk to get this massive payday, right? Uh-huh. Where for other fighters, it's like, well, UFC is not going to care, and you're going to waste a ton of resources that on a very risky venture to do this. And so for other fighters, it doesn't make sense. Now, Ngannou might, because if he does really have a Wilder or Fury fight available, this could be a path, right? But again, why do it when you know you have the sunset provision is there, and without having to go through a, a huge lawsuit, you can just sit out and wait for that to end, your contract to terminate and be a free agent. Hmm. Okay. So, 
but Nate, this Nate, this could have been a possibility for Nate Diaz. But again, the problem is what big fight was waiting for those guys at the time. Jake Paul was, but for Nate Diaz, like I have one fight left. Mm-hmm. It's probably better for me just to get that one fight done instead of going this route. But I mean, again, this is just me hearing it through the rumor mill. There is a chance if he had been delayed that last uh, fight at uh, UFC 279, I believe it was, mm-hmm. if that fight had been delayed further and he couldn't get out, I do think there's a possibility he would have taken some sort of legal action, possibly including the this method, but I think more likely he would have challenged just the legality of them continuing to extend the contracts. Would he have won? Uh, I I do believe there's a good chance he could have won on the on the idea that the contracts keep perpetually being extended because he had an older model version of the contract. But again, you have to go to a lawsuit for that, time-consuming, some money involved. And so it's just it's not worth it compared to just fighting out your contract. So is there like a, a fast track or anything that we could see possibly in the next couple of years that could get the Ali Act expanded into MMA? Well, I mean, the big problem, it's got to pass. It's got to get passed by Congress or the Senate, the House, both, you know, I should say Congress has to pass it, either the House or the Senate, uh, and then be enacted into law for the president to sign. Uh, right now, it doesn't it, it didn't look good under Trump and it doesn't look good now that the Republicans have taken over the the House. And that's not to say that the Democrats were doing anything about it, too. They don't they don't have any interest in the bill, really. But uh, the the people that supported the bill was a Republican uh, member of the House. He's moved up to the Senate and he no longer seems to support it. So the, the step would be is you'd one want to find someone that would be able to submit the bill and you would need to find someone. In the from the Republican side for the House to make sure that they they, they would introduce the bill, and he needs to find some of the Democrats to get it in the Senate. So you get the bill, you have to get the bill introduced and then and then passed. So it's possible it, it, with the divided House the way it is, uh, it doesn't seem likely, but it's possible. The big thing was if it, there was some sort of support for it and a public support, like if there was a large number of fighters coming out to support it, right? Mm-hmm. Because then you could lobby for it. The fighters could counter the lobbying efforts of the UFC because the UFC spend, they've spent a lot of money fighting the Aliak. We have the, you know, Tim Bissell every, every year or two reports on the amount of money spent on open secret by the UFC, the lobby against the Ali Act, and it adds up over time. But if the fighters came out and tried to support it in large enough numbers, that would offer an incentive for con- Congress members because one, it would shine a light on it, and two, it would give them the benefit of being seen with helping fighters out who might have a fan base who might support them. So that's a possibility, but I don't I don't see it likely within the next two years, maybe a little longer. The, the window of opportunity was there several times and it's been kind of missed. And so, you know, the fighters that are complaining now about their situation, maybe they should have thought about that a few years ago. But that gets to a big problem, I think. I mean, for me, it seems like a kind of a simple it seems like an obvious solution to the situation we have. Right. Mm hmm. And the, and the but the problem I see for my for me I I support the idea I think there's nothing wrong with this but I don't know one I don't think there's much support amongst the fan base fans like the promoter especially the UFC owning their own titles I don't see a ton of support amongst the media we've I've seen in the past media, members of the media wrote articles against ever expanding the Ali Act of MMA they thought it would ruin it and I don't even know that there's much support amongst the fighters themselves I think a large percentage of the fighters again, like the idea of the promoters owning their own titles. And so that's probably the biggest hurdle you have to overcome. Can you get the fighters to decide that this would be a positive change for them? This would be good. 
And I don't know if you could get enough of them to go with that. Wow. So basically the fighters are like, I don't even care about expansion. <laughs> yeah, that's well, that's that's a big part of it. Wow. Okay, so what can be done then to fix or improve the Ollie Act? Because it seems kind of like um it's just a piece of paper. It's not well, doing anything. Well, like we said, the right of private action is where the, the real power of the Ollie Act still works. And um and there's but also the argument too that the that we, which we brought up earlier, the right of private action. But there's also the idea that because it sets certain standards of law, like course of contracts are no longer a thing in boxing, which used to be very standard. They've basically been eliminated in boxing mm-hmm. because of the Ali Act. Everybody knows I cannot offer that. I'll lose. A, the fighter will just show up into court and say, this guy offered me a course of contract. They'll throw the contract out. So on that front, it's done stuff. And also in some ways, it's an antitrust bill, an anti-monopoly bill. Now, I don't know if no one knows for sure if the current version of the bill would block a promoter from having his own titles. But guess what? No boxing promoter has created his own titles. There's been rumors several times that a channel would do their own titles or that PBC would create their own titles. Every time they back off. And the theory is because the Ali Act prevents people from creating their own titles because creating your own titles is the first step of creating a monopoly over the division because you have a monopoly over those specific titles. And so on that sense, it it works in that from to improve it, though, we said is you want to do for boxing, you know, for MMA, you just want to pass it. But for boxing, you would want to get the 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 professional boxing amendment act passed. Right. That expands the powers of the Ali Act, creates a national commission. The other thing, like we said before, is a professional boxing association. And if you boxers create an association because they have standing. They, in other words, they, they represent fighters in association, kind of like you know uh, the, the American Bar Association represents a lot of lawyers. If if a promoter was taking advantage of a boxer and violating the Ali Act, okay, the ABC, the Athletic, uh, the uh, Association of Boxing Commissions doesn't do anything. That's fine. The government doesn't. That's fine because the association will take on the responsibility for suing, going to court on behalf of that fighter, on behalf of them, and so he doesn't have to hold. He doesn't have to sit there. And pay for it himself individually and take all the risk. The association will do it. And written in the Ali Act, too, are fine. So the association and one of the stipulations is the losing promoter has to pay all the legal costs of an association. As soon as they win one case, they basically have the resources to file against anybody else. Oh, okay. Okay. And so it would that would be the enforcement body. A professional boxers could enforce it themselves and basically force the same if they I mean this has been my suggestion for boxers, but again it's it's a very hard order to ask because it's not it's not a sport that uh develops solidarity. But if boxers did that, then they could they could sue to keep the sanctioning organizations in line. So they made sure that they they had actual uh, objective ratings. They could sue to keep the different promoters in line to make sure that they shared the re- the revenue properly and followed all the rules. That and basically they could compel everybody to follow the Ali Act. All right, my final question, John. Yes. You've, you've spoken to so many people. It, do you have an inkling at all? Does it look like any movement is going to happen, or are we pretty much stuck in the mud for another five or ten years? I 
I'm not sure. I've talked to a bunch of people. I know uh, last year, actually earlier this year, there was the room. Mark Wayne Mullins team was supposed to submit a new a new bill into Congress. They never did that. And again, the theory is, is because he decided to run for the Senate and because he's going to run for the Senate, he needed Trump's endorsement and didn't want to, you know, uh, be doing anything that would be uh, that would displease him. So there's th- there's that. Uh, I have heard from a few other members of Senate and stuff that they've they've looked into it. They're intrigued by the possibility, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that the people that have been lobbying for it, uh, the the MMAFA, you know, the Nate Corys and uh, and Rob Macy and those guys are are looking to get it submitted again at some point in the future. So I do think there's a chance. I mean, again, the the big question it's right now is that the people that are supporting is a small group of fighters, and it's not there's not the there's not the the weight enough gravity with enough number of fighters involved or a big enough names of let's say current contemporary fighters to push it through. Right. Because what you have is a group of now retired guys that are pushing this through and it's been going on for so long that some of the guys have been retired for close to 10 years. Yeah. And it's, so it doesn't have the, it's not like it feels like it's an immediate need or demand. It's different if the current champions showed up or the current top fighters you know, they're the ones pushing it through. That would be a, that would probably make a much bigger difference. But you have promoters out there making sure that the top guys are so well taken care of that they're not going to be the ones that lobby for change. Well, I, I mean, I would I would go step back because I, I talking to a lot of the top guys. They're the ones that probably most likely like would like to see the Ali Act pass because they're looking at their income and looking at what a boxer in a similar position and going, why can't I make anything close to that? The problem is, again, yeah, the risk, they're, they're the powers, there's so much power in the hands of the promoter that they don't want to they, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to do anything to upset the boat. Because the promoter has the power to basically give them bad fights or put them on the shelf or just a bunch of different stuff that would hurt their career. And so that's there's a strong they have a strong motivation not to come up publicly for it, even though they would probably be the biggest beneficiaries of it. So because, yeah, the top fighters, you could you know, we we talk about top people always say like top MMA fighters are well taken care of UFC fighters, but they're also compared to their what we see in boxing, the most grossly underpaid people in the sport. Sure. But. If they're sitting at the top of the heap and they can look down and see that entry level is 10,000 and they're over here making upwards of a million or more, I, I think that's a control tactic by the UFC. Oh, yeah. it's. I mean, definitely. If the UFC can dictate you know, ch- who gets to fight for a title, I mean, who the opponent is and has a, the length of your career, all those things, It's it makes it very hard to come out and you know, to, to do anything publicly against them. That's uh, that's not obvious. People, I mean, Nate Corey said this once, he doesn't expect current fighters to be the guys to, to come out and lobby Congress or, or be the ones public about this because, you know, his current fighters are terrified. Yeah. And terrified for good reason because exactly. the, the power is overwhelmingly in the hands of the promoter. Exactly. Well, John, this has been enlightening, enlightening. What I want to do right now is give you a moment, let everybody know where to find you on social media and what you have in the pipeline, what we might have missed over the past couple of weeks from you, anything you have to say. Well, I, again, uh, I'm running away with this year on Care Don't Care. If you watch that, that uh, podcast, we're on we're on uh, weekly, basically weekly. We're taking a little hiatus, I think, coming up. So, But uh, you, just you can tune in every week to hear me in my victory lap. Uh, I'm on 
almost every other week on If the Shoes Fit with uh, Lexi Old, Eugene Robinson, and occasionally uh, Nate Wilcox. And then that's basically it. I'm also working on a book with Jacob Debitz uh, about the 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 bite business, that basically the rise of the UFC as a as a business. But uh, we're uh, we're still working on it. It's going to be a while, but sometime next year it should be out. And I am looking forward to that. And what you can look forward to here is in two weeks we'll have another episode of Hey, Not the Face. So until then, please stay safe. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Presents production. To check out more of our content, subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is titled Bloody Elbow Presents. We're also on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you'll get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, the Level Change Podcast, the MMA Bivis Section, the 6th Round Post-Fight Show, 6th Round Retro, the MMA Depressed Us, Crooklyn's Corner, Exclusive Fighter Interviews, Show Money, Guest Podcasts, the Hey Not The Face Podcast, and Radio Style Play-By-Play for every UFC pay-per-view. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloody elbow blog and as always on bloodyelbow.com. <laughs>